It's Thursday, June 26th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. USA, USO, the U.S. soccer team. What a glorious, spectacular loss by not that much. The U.S. is through to the knockout round. The U.S. advances because we lost. But in the past, we had won, and we also once tied, so we lost by not that much. We lost by not that much. It's a weird feeling, isn't it? Anyway, same thing happened to Portugal. No one's saying they lost by not that much of Portugal. They're saying they're out of the tournament, and we're still in it. USA, USA. So more about Team USA in the spiel, I assure you. But let me tell you the benefit of actually coming in second place in our group. If the U.S. had won the group, Germany would have come in second, and that would have set up a very vexillogical conundrum because Germany would have played Belgium. That cannot stand. Why? Well, of course, the flags, I did say vexillogical, the flags of Belgium and Germany, they're both red, black, and gold. Sure, Belgium's vertical stripes, Germany's horizontal stripes, different order. So the question is, you know, these countries are very close to each other. You have a number of colors to choose from. Why do you go with the same three horizontal tricolors? Who gets to keep the red, black, and gold? They could settle it on the pitch, but I say let's settle it in the history books. So the red, black, and gold tricolor of Germany first appeared in the early 19th century, prominently featured in the 1848 revolutions in Germany. So that's old, 1848. Actually, in German, it's barely adolescent. I was going to say it's barely drinking age, but we know what drinking age is in Germany. (laughs) Holding the bottle. So what about Belgium, another good drinking country? Well, the colors of the German flag, which I mentioned are red, black, and gold, they're based on a famous duchy of Brabant. They had a symbol of a lion. It was a very nice golden lion against a black field. So where did the red come in? Gules. Do you know what gules is? That's the uh, red tincture in heraldry. And the lion's tongue and sometimes the nails were depicted in red. And this duchy of Brabant, I'm probably saying it wrong, that's okay, goes all the way back to 1183. And that flag has been flying for at least, it was actually written into the Constitution of Belgium in 1831 that these are our colors. Like The U.S. Constitution has a lot in it, but it doesn't actually spell out the colors. So it would be unconstitutional in Belgium to be anything other than red, black, and gold. I say they get to keep the flag. So as I said, soccer spiel. We'll also talk to Adam Davidson on rent control. But now, the stock market. It's been calm. Some say too calm. There's a measure of fear on Wall Street. I don't mean that figuratively. I mean, there's this thing called the VIX, this index that measures volatility or fear. And it's at its all-time or near its all-time low. What Wall Street is saying is that things right now are pretty safe and that things are boring. That's a pretty good thing, right? Especially when you consider that over the first six months of this year, basically everything is up. I mean, you could find some, you know, Ghanaian company that's down, but all the broad indices and all the broad types of stocks and um, and bonds, they're, they're all doing well. So this should be a good thing, right? Except some on Wall Street are freaking out that the VIX is so low. But freaking out is the opposite of what should be happening. So to sort this all out for me, I'm going to speak with David Siegel, who's a vice president at MPS Global Securities. Hello, David. 
Hey, Mike, how you doing? I'm well. So traders, I, t- I have friends who are traders, and they're always talking about how the job chews them up and spits them out and how it's really prevalent that a trader will land in a hospital with chest pains. But now that things are calm, isn't that good? Why are, why are traders complaining about how calm it is? Well, the, the, calm on, the calm on Wall Street is actually a good thing, but a lot of the banks and, and clients out there and investors in general make money based on a level of volatility in the market. So the lack of volatility, uh, therefore, actually reduces opportunities for people to make money out there. Right. So let's explain the VIX. Now, you have the S&P 500, which is, I think we all get, it's this broad index of stocks, 500 stocks. And you could buy an option on the S&P 500. So options are sort of a bet in the future. Is it going to go up to a certain point? So what's special about the VIX? It takes the idea of the option and kind of puts a number to it. Could you explain it? What the VIX does, actually, is it looks at all of the options to a term, which is one month out. So what you can buy if you're an investor in the market is protection, meaning you can buy a put to the downside, or you can buy a call to the upside, which gives you exposure if you want to actually buy the market. What the VIX does is it looks at every strike to the downside put and to the upside call and time weights them one month forward. Um, and comes up with, with one number that is basically measuring the skew or the shape of that put-and-call uh, curve. And it will quote this to investors in real time. So it's, it's one aggregated number that people can look at that will generalize the value of all of these puts and calls one month out in the S&P. So a lot of people will look at this number um, and say option prices one month, one month forward are actually are expensive or are cheap. And right now that number is so low that it's, it's, it's raising a lot of flags to investors saying um, volatility is so low, um, people out there are too complacent. And now I just want to understand one thing. Does the VIX get higher if there are more calls than puts? Is that the idea? The number of people betting the market's going to go up instead of the market's going to go down? If people are buying options and the price of options is going up, the VIX will go up regardless of which way they're buying it. Whether they're buying the upside or the downside, the VIX will go up if the price of the option is more expensive than it was yesterday. So that would be a measure of volatility. If it's uh, more expensive to buy than yesterday, it means that people think that things are going to jump around. Even if people are buying the upside aggressively and people yeah. are lifting call prices, the VIX will go up. So it, it doesn't necessarily tell you which way the market's going. It just tells you that people are willing to pay more for the price of an option. Right. So basically, it's one number. So we all see that vision on TV where everyone's going, buy, 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 or sell, sell, sell. So what it's doing is like t- measuring the volume. If there are four guys going, bye, 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 the VIX will be low. But if there are 40 guys yelling, bye, 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 or sell, 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 then the VIX will be 10 times higher. Exactly. And just like one of my old mentors told me, it's the speed, not the direction. So can you buy the VIX like you buy shares of IBM and sell it just, uh, just the same? Absolutely. And there, there, are some interesting, um, there are some interesting points in the VIX that some people understand better than others. Yeah. Um, the VIX is a spot contract that is in itself untradeable. Um, but the way that people gain exposure to the VIX is through futures contracts. So you're able to trade one-month VIX futures, for example, or, say, the July VIX contract. And you've done this. This is what you do. Exactly. This is what I've done for the last 15 years. I get that. Um, I get that you're an expert at this to the point where you've named your car after this. What makes you so good at it? A few different things. I mean, I studied engineering in college, and I feel like I'm very quantitative and numbers-based, mm-hmm. and the world of volatility makes sense to me 
in the sense that it's an insurance-based product. People buy volatility generally to hedge a portfolio of something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for this is that volatility has a great negative correlation to the market, meaning that when the market goes down, volatility goes up. When the market goes up, volatility goes down. So people are able to use it and implement it as a great hedging product. This is kind of in-depth stuff. We understand the VIX a bit better. We definitely get an insight into you. But someone who doesn't care about the stock market, just what, what does this matter? It's really a great indicator as to sentiment, especially in the summertime and when things are quiet when, and when the market is very calm. Unfortunately, what a lot of people don't realize about the VIX is that it's quite a backwards-looking indicator. It will measure the movements that the market has seen in the past. So there are two components to volatility. One is realized, what we've actually seen in the past, and one is implied, what people are anticipating volatility in the future. Right now, realized volatility is extremely low because the market isn't moving a lot. Um, In the past 48 days, the S&P index itself has not seen a 1% move. And the last time we've seen such a period of quiet was back in 1995. I use the metaphor of like holding a balloon underwater. Mm-hmm. You, you can hold it underwater and you can pull it lower and lower and lower. But, uh, you know, like, like a balloon underwater, like a coiled spring, at some point, uh, all of this calm and complacency at, at some point will, will lead to a head. And there will be a volatility event. And all of these people selling volatility and all the people waiting to buy volatility will, will pounce. All right, David J. Siegel, Vice President of MPS Global Securities. This guy knows the VIX. Thanks a lot, David. Thanks, Mike. A couple days ago, New York City's Rent Guidelines Board enacted the city's lowest ever rent hike. The headline in the Los Angeles Times, because I guess they don't cover this, and I've been to a few of these, and it's the same all the time, but the headline was, New York rent hearings grow rancorous. They don't grow rancorous. They started out rancorous, and they're always rancorous. Here now, a little of that rancor. Rent freeze, rent freeze, rent freeze, rent freeze, rent freeze. So the issue of rent control, as you could hear, fairly impassioned. What do economists say about this? Well, joining me now is Adam Davidson, founder of Planet Money. Hello, Adam. Hey, Mike. So those people are obviously impassioned, but even regular people, you ask them, they say, yeah, we want affordable housing and, you know, we want rent controls because we don't want to pay too much for housing. But economists, as you know, Adam, because you study them, they pretty much totally disagree, right? This is something I hate to bring up. I hate to talk about, like, sitting around Prospect Park with yeah. all my friends, yeah. and we've got our kids playing. Like, you could all agree that, like, yeah, we like our artisanal pickles, and yeah, the music is better when it's uh, not piped in but provided by a live orchestra. And you're like, wait, I, I need to break this trend for a second. Yeah, and exactly. say that we need yeah, more Yeah, no, I am, I am 100% culturally yeah. left. You know, <laughs> I am, I'm fully in on the artisanal pickle thing. Yeah. New York, using New York as the iconic example, has way too little housing. You know, the vacancy rate is like 1.7% or whatever it is. It's incredibly, ridiculously, absurdly expensive to Mm -hmm. live here. Mm -hmm. Simple. We need more supply. Right. And anything you do to reduce supply by, for example, imposing price controls, you 
make the situation worse. So when the economists do the math and say, well, what if we just made it all open? The numbers you see is uh, Manhattan pretty quickly becomes only wealthy people. So right now, the average income in Manhattan is 90000 One economist said it probably goes up to around 130 something like that. Um, although obviously parts of Manhattan would you know, be far, far higher than that. Parts are way above 130 now. Yeah. yeah. But then very quickly, we would see prices coming way down in Brooklyn, Queens. Like I live pretty into Brooklyn. I live south of Park Slope. And, you know, the house next to me that an Irish immigrant family bought 40 years ago, 50 years ago for like eight grand, just sold for $1.6 million. And it's a very lovely couple, but one of them works on Wall Street. And that is that pressure, that Manhattan Mm -hmm. pressure coming out here. So to an economist, it's a very simple problem. Get rid of the government controls. You give up on Manhattan. Manhattan only has rich people. And then you lower the pressure dramatically, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, the Bronx, et cetera. The other thing probably a lot of economists would do away with is the level of zoning rules that we have in New York. But, you know, now new buildings go up and people recognize that, oh, we need to have housing. So there is something called like an 80-20 split. 80% sold to the highest bidder, but 20% are reserved for middle-income people. And I think that's seen as a decent compromise. Why isn't it? It's just reducing supply. So if you're going to build a building and you're doing the math, you're putting, you're saying, I've got to borrow money, I'm going to pay to have this building built, and then I'm going to make up this much money over the next 30 years. If you can sell 100% of the units at the market rate, you know, you have one income stream. If you say, well, I have to make all my money on 80% of the units because 20% I'm going to have to charge below market rates, then you're just going to build fewer units because you it's not as profitable an opportunity. So it just means less housing. Oh, because I thought that the idea was, well, you'll just make it up in those other 80 units. Instead of selling them all for half a million each, you'll sell them all for 600000 each, and you'll have the same amount of money in your pocket. Well, the assumption is there's a market rate. Yeah. And so you don't get to decide how much you charge. You, you know, if you could charge 600000 you'd charge 600000 whether you that's for 80% or 100%. Right. So the basic economic theory is... New York housing policy is unbelievably expensive, and every New Yorker pays a huge amount, hundreds of dollars a month, maybe thousands of dollars a month. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars that you and I and every New Yorker is spending, and that all of which achieves the opposite of the goal, which is there's less affordable housing. So to the economist, this is a simple problem. There's a huge gain to be made. Release, just let it be market. Let it be a free market. And then if you care about things like having poor people or middle-income people in some parts of Manhattan or you care about having affordable housing for other people, you would make so much money. You could raise taxes and you could use that money to subsidize housing. And you know, to an economist, when the government subsidizes housing directly by choosing poor people and saying you should get this money and then you can use it in the market, that's much less distortionary. We all know a f- fairly well-off people get those rent control apartments. Yep. It's not, it's, there, there's no actual means testing. Now, the argument I've heard against it is simply, but that's not how it's going to work. <laughs> if you change the system, yeah. New York has a very powerful political force called developers. They're going to change the system to their benefit. It's not going to benefit the poor people. So, yes, this is suboptimal, but it's probably better than whatever we'd get. Well, what about cities where they've done away with rent control and rent stabilization? That's happened. Do they have a lesson to teach? 
Ed Glazer, who's uh, an economist who writes a lot about cities, you know, he uses the Dallas model. And, and he talks about how, you know, Northeast artisanal pickle making. By the way, I literally eat a lot of artisanal pickles in Brooklyn, made in Brooklyn. Mass market pickles? I love, I genuinely <laughs> am a Brooklyn artisanal pickle eating uh, guy. And I'm right now wearing sandals and shorts. I'm fully in. You like early modest mass. Yeah. But you look at. Dallas and you see, so culturally we see it as, you know, we make fun of it. It seems benighted and that's fine. I don't want to live in, I, I personally don't want to live in Dallas. Yeah. It is a place where you see people who make families that make 60 grand a year, 70 grand a year, able to afford a really nice house yeah. and able to invest in it and build up savings with good schools, etc. And you don't have this bizarre thing you have in New York where there's huge opportunity, but there's this unbelievable barrier to entry, which is just getting rent. And you also don't have this bifurcated system or trifurcated maybe where the very wealthy do have very nice places. And then there's the middle class like you and me where we are living in a world of compromise where we're paying way more per square foot than anyone in the world would reasonably pay. And we have compromises. The housing stock isn't quite that great. But then obviously the poor really suffer. I mean, if if you're able to afford $600 a month and you don't have some kind of public housing, that that's ugly. I mean, that I've been to those homes. It's very, very grim. And that is where the, the cost is most felt. So there is a solution. The solution is increase supply, make it easier to build places. You'll see fewer developers controlling everything. You'll see a richer market. People say, well, why would anyone build housing for the poor when they could just build housing for the rich? But why is there... There's a market for anything. Why are there dollar stores? Exactly. Why are there, like, you know, crappy hotels and really fancy hotels? There are steakhouses and there's, you know, Hardee's to pick on. Great. Adam Davidson, founder of Planet Money, layer on of knowledge. Thank you, dude. Thank you, Mike. And now it's the spiel. And I, I believe, I believe that, I believe that we, I believe that we will win. I believe that we will win. I believe that we will win. This is the chant that the U.S. needed. This is what is clearly animating their play in Brazil. The U.S. offense, they look better. I mean, they don't look great in the 1-0 loss to Germany today. But yeah, the U.S. is playing forward better than they ever have. The goalie, he's always great. You know, the defense isn't so good. But we're, we're bringing it all together in Brazil. And I really think it's because of the chant. Not only is I believe that we will win a good chant... Of all songs that begin with I Believe, it's actually much better than the rest of them. Like there's R. Kelly's I Believe I Can Fly. Well, you can't. And you say that if for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows, you say that like it's a hopeful thing. In fact, it would be Florigeddon. And while I do believe that children are the future, and you teach them right and you let them lead the way, for the U.S., the future is now. The U.S. national team needs wins, and to get wins, we need chance. For years, the U.S. has had horrible chance. Our team, our soccer play, has been progressing a lot better than our chance. Our chance couldn't survive relegation to the second division. And I've been on this vital issue for years. Here's my report from four years ago as America was tuning up for the World Cup. But the fans in East Hartford couldn't muster much more than this. Oh, 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 oh. 
Spectator Elias Tapley said a deeper repertoire will emerge if the fans can build on the few songs currently sung Red, White and Blue. How do we get there? We've got to keep on doing this. We've got to exactly do what we're doing right now. And here's me reporting from that World Cup in South Africa. It was right after the U.S. tied England 1-1. England fans certainly outnumbered the United States. They're better at songs. They're better at flags. They're better at chants. C-H-A-N-T-S, chants. And the English, I mean, they do have good chants. They take England. What is the word England? They turn it into England. They even do this with Wales. Right? The part of England, Wales. I was at a boxing match with Joe Calzaghi, a Welsh fighter, and the crowd was chanting, Wales, Wales. It was meadow when you think about it. So the U.S. has long lagged behind in chants until I believe that we will win. Actually, technically speaking, what we really needed, and it's very hard for the chant to reflect this, but I believe that we will not lose by a net of more than four goals as compared to Portugal. All right, that one actually takes a while. So we sent Andrea to this event nearby the office, like it was a Nike pop-up thing, and we wanted to see if the just regular folk were doing I Believe That We Will Win. chanting We Believe. Why do you guys think the We Believe chant isn't in this room right now? Because everybody's dead. We're in New York City. We're jaded. We're Yankees fans. We, we wait to chant after we win. We don't chant while we're losing, unfortunately. Do you guys want to try to start it with me and we'll see if it works? To be honest, I tried being that guy a few occasions. It didn't really work. You so cool. You were just saying that booing's a very American thing. It is. Why do you think that? We're pessimists by nature. So we boo and we front run. It's the most American things we can do. You know what? I actually don't believe that these guys believe that we will win. Maybe they didn't believe that we will win. And guess what? We didn't win. How about that, guys? I know they can't hear you down in Brazil, but the next time the U.S. players are asked, what's it like knowing that all of the U.S. is behind you? Maybe we need an asterisk for the guys at the Nike pop-up event. Hmm. Come on, guys. I believe. I believe that in your hearts, you believe that we will win. In our next game, which is Tuesday versus Belgium, they are in the middle tier of all the Benelux nations. They call themselves the Red Devils. They are, after Germany, the tallest team in the tournament, even though one of the smallest players in the tournament, Dries Mertens, plays on the team. After he scores a goal, this guy sometimes pantomimes, executing a putt in golf, or in his case, mini golf. In any case, I believe we could beat the Devils. I believe we could master the mini golfer. And if we win, then Argentina looms. And I believe that I'm going to stop right here. And that is it for the show. Okay, Facebook puzzle of the day. Vex Vix Vox. What's Vex Vix Vox? Go to facebook.com slash slate just to find out. And also go to iTunes. There you could give us a star rating or even a review. We have almost 300 ratings, almost 200 reviews. That is really good. The producer of Slate Podcasts is Andrea Salenzi. Andrea Salenzi. Andrea Salenzi. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. And you can sign up for our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. Email the gist at slate.com. Belgium. Belgium. With a birth rate of 1.65, you're barely at replacement rate. Belgium. That's going to catch on. Thanks for listening.